Isaiah chapter 21. Okay, I'm going to read to you the passage we're doing tonight, which is from verse 11 and following, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll go through the text. The oracle concerning Duma, one is calling to me from Seir, Seir. Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? The watchman says, morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. The oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets in Arabia you will lodge, O caravans of deadenites. To the thirsty bring water. Meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tima. For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. For thus the Lord said to me, within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end, and the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few. For Yahweh, the God of Israel, has spoken. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we come to this passage tonight, Lord, we might understand and understanding and seeing your ways, we might know you better. And Lord, that we might, seeing you, become more like you. It's this that we desire, that we would ever more be transformed into your image for your glory. We want to find our satisfaction in Christ alone. Lord, may you bring that about tonight, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so a brief reminder, um, because it has been a bit of a break since we've been in Isaiah. Um, and I know there's a few visitors, so we'll give you a potted history of the first 20 and a half chapters of Isaiah, very, very briefly. Okay, the first five chapters of Isaiah are prophecies that Isaiah gives as a theological foundation for the book. It introduces the key themes, it tells you what the key issues are, and it sets us up, really, for the things that he's going to be dealing with throughout the book with his prophecies. In, in fact, if you go, uh, if, when you go through the rest of the book of Isaiah, pretty much every major uh, theological thread that Isaiah um, gives us finds its origin in the these first five chapters. Then when we get to chapter six, we have the chronological beginning, the famous passage, the calling of Isaiah. He sees a vision of the Lord's temple, uh, not in heaven as is commonly misunderstood, but upon the earth. It's one of the themes of the first five chapters that he sees the temple in the last days. And Following his calling, he's told that the people of Israel um, simply won't understand what he's saying. They won't repent. I mean, as, as, a, as a preacher, it must be about the worst thing you could be told. That here you are, here's your mission, here's your calling. Here I am, Lord, send me. And here's your mission, off you go. You're going to go and preach to these people, but I don't want them to repent. So what am I doing exactly? You're preaching to them, and they're not going to repent. I mean, that's pretty brutal. That's what's going on there. And that is a central passage for understanding so much of how God deals with Israel from the time of Christ right through to the present day. And then 
with that passage of the, the calling, we then come into the, the historical situation of Isaiah's day, that there he is, and the uh, armies are gathering before Jerusalem, and he goes to the, um, the king Ahaz, and he offers him a sign. And we have the book of Emmanuel, and really what this, this section of Isaiah from chapter 7 through to 12 is doing is it's really pushing this key theme. Israel, or, or Judah, more accurately, the southern kingdom of Judah he's preaching to. Judah, who are you going to trust in? Are you going to trust in the nations around you, you, or are you going to trust in Yahweh? And in the midst of that, there is this reoccurring assurance that even though you, Judah, have been unfaithful, I won't be unfaithful to you. And my promises to the house of David, specifically through the, the Davidic covenant, these will come to pass regardless of your faithfulness. And the giving of the, the famous sign of the virgin and the virgin birth is the sign that the, uh, the house of David will uh, receive it, the fruition of its prophecies. Now, as he talks about that, the, the promises to the house of David being fulfilled. It's clear that it's through this virgin birth and through this child that it's going to come to pass. And so there are many details concerning this coming Messiah, this coming anointed one who is going to come and who will have a kingdom that will have no end. And so much of what we know about Jesus Christ you can teach from Isaiah 7 through 12. The fact that the Messiah will be both man and God is in Isaiah 7 through 12. The fact that he will have a kingdom, Isaiah 7 through 12. The fact that he is of the house of David, the fact that he um, will uh, establish God's purposes, the glory of God fulfilling the earth, his kingdom stretching over the land and over the nations. This is all here in these chapters. And once that has been dealt with, Come to the end of chapter 12. The book of Emmanuel is done. God is, says, I'm going to fulfill my purposes to you, Israel. You don't have to worry about those nations because I'm going to fulfill my promises to you through this Messiah. Then when we come to chapter 13, we embark on this big long section that we're in the midst of, which is him saying something very different, but for a very similar purpose. So he's saying, don't worry about the nations because I'm going to be faithful to you and here's the Messiah. Now in chapters 13 and following, he's saying, don't you worry about the nations because I'm God of the nations too and I'm going to judge them. And then we have this whole sequence of oracles and prophecies concerning the nations. And from chapters 13 uh, going all the way through to um, chapter uh, 19, what we have is we have um, a sequence of oracles that deal with all of these nations specifically in the end times. Then in chapter 20, relatively recently, we had um, a new historical section beginning, and uh, in that brief chapter, and now we've returned to the oracles. In chapter 21, he's continuing to deal with the nations. He returned to Babylon in chapter 21. But the prophecies concerning Babylon in chapter 21 were prophecies concerning the more immediate future of Babylon. In the earlier chapters, chapters 13 and 14, there was much prophecy about Babylon. But it was all about Babylon at the very, very end, the final what's going to happen to Babylon. 
in chapter 21, it has been about what is going to happen to Babylon in the near future, specifically how Babylon will be defeated by the Medo-Persians. Then we come to verse 11. And verse 11 and verse 13 begin two separate oracles. And so, having had this kind of reboot, as you, if you like, in chapter 20, we then have the oracles against the nations continuing um, in a slightly different kind of uh, way, not, not all so much end time stuff. And now we come to these two very brief oracles. And... It's, they're very intriguing. I'm still trying to put together, I felt like with the earlier section, the sequence of them I kind of understood really well. But I'm still struggling to understand exactly his purpose in um, putting it together as he has. I think it will become clearer later on. But anywho's, so we come to this new oracle now concerning Duna in verse 11. Okay? Duma, rather. The oracle concerning Duma. Now, when you read this, the first thing you're thinking is, where on earth is Duma? Right? Because when you look at some of the other ones and you see these places like, you know, an oracle concerning Egypt, you're like, oh, I know where Egypt is, but an oracle concerning Moab, you know, I re you might remember that name from in the Bible, but you don't know it so well. But the funny thing about Duma is if you were reading this in Isaiah's day, you wouldn't know where Duma was either. It's not a place. It doesn't exist. Well, that makes it a little bit difficult, doesn't it? It really does. And in fact, if all we had was this oracle about Duma, verses 11 and 12, then you'd be stuck. They are incredibly cryptic verses, and alone they would remain a mystery. And this kind of obscure prophecy is not completely unusual in the prophets. They occasionally do it. So is that my way of saying, well, we just don't know? No, no, we do know, but we only know because of other passages. So normally I'm very, very careful to, to not go too far beyond the text. Tonight I'm going to have to, because if I don't go beyond the text, I can't tell you what it means. It's only when you have other prophecies later that this becomes clear. Okay? Now, before I explain this prophecy, let's just deal with that principle first, okay? Because that's quite an intriguing thing. That God would give a prophecy to someone who wouldn't understand it, wouldn't know what it meant, that would only become clear later on. That seems a bit bizarre. Let me say a couple of things about that. Firstly, the Bible as a whole is a book of progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. Now... In England, I always used to the, use the example of a guy called Rolf Harris. He was an artist that we watched on TV as kids growing up. And then he got arrested for things that I shouldn't speak about. So he's probably not the best person to mention anymore. Plus, none of you know who he is anyway. And you have a guy with big curly hair called Bob something? Bob Ross. That's the one. So it's a bit like when Bob Ross does a drawing. And I watched a bit of Bob Ross, so I kind of got myself a bit up to speed on this. But he starts painting away, and you're like, what the heck are you doing, pal? That's, you know, you're supposed to be a good artist. I've heard all sorts of good things about you. And here you are making lines and dots and dashes, and it makes no sense at all, right? And then he keeps going, and he keeps going, and it ends up, ah, I can see something here. And then you get to the end, and it's just magnificent. But early on, you can't see it. And, and the Bible is a bit like that, in that it's a book of progressive revelation. That God reveals something, and then he reveals something else, and then what was being said earlier becomes a little bit clearer, and a little bit clearer, and a little bit clearer. 
I think one of the main ways in that Christians today have misunderstood the Bible and come to, uh, to erroneous conclusions with their theology is what they do is they say, well, Jesus, you go through the Bible, you get to Jesus, right? And now Jesus is obviously the centerpiece of the scripture. He is the centerpiece of all revelation. And so people say, well, what we need to do then is we need to go back and reinterpret the entire previous part of the Bible, predominantly the Old Testament, and re-look at it in light of Jesus. And that sounds really okay at first glance. But the problem is, is if you end up coming to conclusions that the original readers never have understood, then you've essentially said that they had no way of knowing what God had told them all along and that they were misled. They were misinformed. It seemed to mean one thing, but it didn't mean that. Now, here we come to a passage that is deliberately mysterious. So when they read it, they wouldn't have understood it. They're waiting for later progressive revelation to come to clarify the meaning of this. But what it shows us is, is that the rest of the Old Testament is relatively clear. And when, people, when God said to people, here is this revelation, people understood it, then them understanding it in a plain sense, it was true. Progressive revelation does not make something that is presented to later be untrue. It only clarifies and expands upon what was already true. I hope that makes sense. That God is not contradicting himself, he's not changing his mind, he's simply giving us additional details. The fact that this is mysterious is a little bit different, but it shows you what it actually would look like when you have something that cannot be understood at all without further revelation. And so God uh, speaks through progressive revelation, and we are going to progress a bit beyond Isaiah 21 tonight to try and make sense of it. Um, so, spoiler here then of the mystery, Duma is a veiled reference to Edom. Edom. Now, um, Edom is uh, another way of referring to Esau, Jacob's brother. He was the, the, the one. And Edom means red. Um, Esau was, was a red-headed man, a hairy man. We know things about uh, him from the scripture. And his descendants were the Edomites. And that is who is being referenced here. They were uh, not part of Israel. Remember, uh, Abraham receives the covenant. The covenant passes to Isaac, and only to Isaac, not to Ishmael. And then from Isaac, the covenant passes to Jacob, and not to his brother Esau. Even though Esau was firstborn, that the covenant gets passed to Jacob. And then it is the descendants of Jacob, all 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, through who, who become the nation of Israel. So the Edomites were, were often uh, a thorn in the flesh, as it were, to Israel throughout their history. So Edom means red. And you can't see it very clearly in English, but you can see it a little bit. With the, with the, the nation Edom... You've got a D and an M with a little O in the middle there, right? Now remember with Hebrew, you have consonants and the vowels, not always, but mostly are little dots and dashes that are put above and below the letters. So you have with Edom the D and the M and the O in the middle 
is a kind of a letter that's used as a vowel, but it can, with different dots and dashes, be different vowels. Then we have Duma, and we lose the initial vowel, the E of Edom. We've still got the D and the M. The U in the middle comes from the same letter that makes the O in Edom. And then the, the R afterwards is an addition at the end. So the center part of both of these words is the same. In other words, it's a play on words, you know? Um, trying to think of something clever in English to, 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 do, to do it, but, um, you know, um, but I, I can't off the top of my head, so, so I won't. But they, it is a play on words. Edom is predominantly the same letters as Duma, and therefore it is, is a play on words. That, 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 that we would know that, I think, is pretty easy to determine from this passage alone, because when the oracle comes... We're told at the beginning, one is calling to me from Seir. Seir is the mountain, Mount Seir. It is the key mountain in the range where the Edomites settled. It's their mountain, as it were, Mount Seir. And so uh, that gives the game away. When you have a reference to Mount Seir, and when you have Duma being uh, a play on words with Edom, then you're getting a little glimpse of uh, who is being referred to here. So why the subterfuge? Why the, the mystery about the whole thing? Well, it comes down a little bit to what Duma means. Duma means silence. Silence. Now, there are a couple of different Hebrew words for silence, and this word for silence seems to have a specific meaning. Um, you don't need to turn there because I'm going to turn there for you, but I'm just going to reference a few uh, psalms where the word is used. Um, in Psalm 31, it says, O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol, to their death, essentially. So the word silence is used in the context of death. And then again, that was uh, 31 verse 17. And then Psalm 94, Psalm 94 um, verse 17 as well. If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon lived in the land of silence. Land of silence, in context, is their place of death. And then again, Psalm 115, and bizarrely enough, verse 17 there as well. The dead do not praise Yahweh, nor do any who go down into silence. You see, the word Duma is, means silence, literally, but it is silence that is always associated with the silence of death. You see, this is the cryptic thing being said here, that Edom is going to come to a place of stillness, darkness, sleep, death that there is this silence that comes from one who is unable to speak. And this prophecy is the first prophecy of Isaiah concerning Edom, but it's not going to be the last. Let's flick ahead so that we can see it. Um, in Isaiah 34, <coughs> he uh, is continuing to speak of the nations, draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. And as he deals in that section... 
He talks about Edom. Look at verse 5 of Isaiah 34. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens, and behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom. So we see a, a, a death-like silence being associated with Edom. We know this judgment coming. The more specifics of the judgment are coming in chapter 34. Upon the people I've devoted to destruction. Yahweh has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat. The blood of lambs and goats. The fat of kidneys and of rams. For Yahweh has a sacrifice in Bosra. Bosra is important. Some modern versions may not say Bosra. It may translate Bosra, which means sheepfold. Nonetheless, it is a literal place, Bosra. It's mentioned a few times in scripture. A great slaughter in the land of Edom. So Bosra is a place that is in Edom. And in Bosra, there is going to be a sacrifice and there is going to be a slaughter. Uh, a little bit later on, verse 9, the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, her soil into sulfur, her land shall become a burning pitch. There will become a great judgment that will come upon Edom. We'll talk more about that in the end. If you go a little bit further to Isaiah 63, this is a very well-known passage. Some of you may not have come across it, but some of you certainly will have done. Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Eden in crimsoned garden, garments from Bosra? Do you see again the link? What did we see in Isaiah 34? We saw that there was a judgment involving blood shed that was coming to Edom, specifically a sacrifice of blood that was made in the form of the judgment of the people that was coming to the place of Bosra in the land of Edom, right? All right, so now we've got the same thing. We have Bosra and Edom and these crimson garments, right? Which we'll see in a moment is blood. Who is it who comes from Edom? Who is it who comes from Edom? Well, let's find out. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. So it's someone who's great and strong and mighty. And who is it? It is I... Speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Sound like anyone you know? Christians? That's Jesus. Jesus is coming from Edom, specifically from Bosra, and he's coming in crimson garments because, verse 3, Oh, let's do verse 2 first. Why is your apparel red and your garments like he who treads in the winepress? So you have these white garments that have become red like someone who's been crushing grapes and has got covered in wine. He said, I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath up held me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drink, uh, drunk in my wrath and I poured out the lifeblood on the earth. Jesus Christ, clearly Jesus Christ, comes from Edom, specifically from the place called Bosra, and he comes in judgment 
And he comes alone. There's not some army that's working through him. Again and again in Isaiah, God says, I'm going to bring judgment to this nation. <clears throat> and he does it through another nation. He does it through people. And here, very clearly and very specifically, this one who is great and mighty to save comes in wrath to bring judgment and single-handedly destroys the Edomites. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, some people are going to say, well, doesn't he come back in Jerusalem, Mount of Olives? Let's come to that in a minute. But that's what it seems to be saying. So, again, we have this progressive revelation in Isaiah. We have the progressive revelation concerning Edom, which starts out with this cryptic, there will be deathly silence. Then progressively comes along and you get more details of the bloodiness of the judgment. And then you come to the end and you see the full revelation of this character, this Messiah, who has been progressively revealed through the book of Isaiah as well. And the final judgment of Edom comes at his hands solely. So you see that progression. Okay? As to why he deals with them so cryptically now, I don't fully know. and I don't pretend to. But here's my best guess. When, and I might change my mind in a few chapters' time because I'm progressing as we're progressing. I can't be expected to know the entirety of Isaiah before I've taught the entirety of Isaiah. So to some degree, I'm kind of, kind of gathering knowledge as I go as well. So, but from the book so far, there very much was in the first sequence of oracles to the nations, there was prophecies concerning all of these nations at the end times. We saw this again and again. In that day, in that day, in that day, reference to what Isaiah introduced as a concept in the first five chapters, the, the theological thread of the Lord's day, the day of the Lord, the day of the final judgment, end times, right? So in that end time stuff, there's always oracles. Then we have the reboot, and we go back where we started. We started in the oracles of end times with Babylon. We start now again with Babylon in, uh, in chapter uh, 21. And in, with Babylon, we now have more immediate judgment. So here, he's dealing with Edom. And I think I'll be able to show you in a moment that in one sense, what he's dealing with is something that is immediate for Edom. But he's hinting at what comes at the end. But this is not a section that deals with what comes at the end. So he only cryptically refers to it because it's kind of like would be a bit of a spoiler because he's not dealing with that in this section. Does that make sense? That's my best way of understanding it. He's created something cryptic about what happens to them at the end because it's not the time to talk about what happens at the end. That's what I think is going on. Anyway, let's look at the prophecy. <laughs> All of this and we haven't even dealt with the prophecy. Let's deal with the prophecy, okay? One is calling to me from Seir. Seir. That's the mountain, as I said. What of the watchman? What of the night? Watchman, what titled time of the night? In the Hebrew, it's literally what of the night. The implication is what time of the night is it? The idea is that the watchman would be the one who would keep track of the hours and would know, you know, what time it is and what have you, and they do shifts. And, and so the watch, if you wake up in the middle of the night, you know, I, if I wake up in the night and I need to go and empty my bladder or something, I'll check my watch and see what time it is. I've got a watch that tells me. But you wouldn't know the time if you woke up in the middle of the night in those days. But the watchman would. So the watchman is the one who, in the midst of darkness, hint, silence, death, darkness, he's the one in the midst of darkness, he is able to tell us 
how much time has passed. What's interesting in the repetition here is in one sense it's exactly the same. What time of the night, what time of the night. What is interesting is that the Hebrew word for night is slightly different in each, uh, in each instance. In Hebrew, sometimes you have long versions of uh, words or names, and then you have shortened versions as well. Um, we had one of those very briefly today when we were talking about in this morning about the Nephilim and the Rephaim. I said to you that one of the names given to them by locals was the Zamzumim, which is also referred to just as the Zumin, the, the abbreviated form. And here, there's two forms of the word night. One is longer and one is shorter. <coughs> And why is that relevant? It's simply a poetic device. It's a rhetorical device to try and give you a, a degree of urgency. You know, it would be like a kid saying to their, to their parents, you know, mom, dad, come quickly. Mom, dad, come quick. You know, you're just, you're just shortening and abbreviating to, to, to create a sense of urgency, which is what is being communicated in, 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 in the way he's writing here. And so there is a degree of urgency, and the question is, how much time has passed? Or in other words, how, how long will it be until morning? How much more is there to endure? And when you understand that the place is called Duma, there's an implication of darkness and of death and of sleep. There is this kind of foreboding sense already, and it's like, how much longer are we going to be in darkness here? How much longer is this going to go on for? The answer comes in verse 12. Verse 12 says this. The watchman says, and here's the response. One little, little, uh, little bit of information here in passing. This is one of the very few places in the Bible. You do come across this in the book of Daniel. You also come across it in the book of Ezra in larger sections. But here, in this single verse, is not Hebrew. It's Aramaic. Because that would be the language that would be spoken by the Edomites. Again, it's another clue in a cryptic puzzle. And so Aramaic is what is spoken here rather than Hebrew. The response in Aramaic is, morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire. Come back again. Okay, really, really cryptic. Let's unpack it if we can, okay? Firstly, morning comes but also the night. Right, so when this darkness comes to an end, morning, it's also going to be night. In other words, there is no end to the darkness. When, when this darkness comes to an end, there's no relief. Darkness simply leads to darkness. This trial leads to another trial. This judgment leads to another judgment. The point is, is if you're waiting for light to come at the end of darkness, then morning is not going to bring you light, just simply more darkness. That seems to be what is being said here. And so there is no relief when morning comes. He then says, if you will inquire, then inquire. So if this is what you want to know, if you want to know when it's going to end, when it's going to end, you, you go ahead. You ask. You, just, you keep saying, when, when's the light coming? When's the light coming? When's the light coming? You, you just keep asking. The implication is, though, I ain't going to change anything. To say, when will this come to an end, isn't going to make it come to an end. I, kind of, I think this is the first instance in literature of the, the modern-day equivalent of, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You can ask it as much as you want to ask it, but it isn't going to make the morning come. 
And here in this, in this whole uh, setting, it, there isn't an end to this journey because there's darkness following darkness. So what then is being said, you, if you can inquire, you will inquire, inquire, but then it says, and it says in the ESV, come back again. Come back again. Um, this is a translation of two separate words. The first word, first word that's translated here, come back, literally means turn. So, turn around, come back, right? And then the second word literally means come. So, turn and come, which you can see why that would be translated. Turn, come back, again. So, turn and come, come back to... Yeah, I think again is per, uh, come back is perhaps... Uh, overstating the case, but the idea is simply you're heading in one direction, you need to turn and head back in the other direction. That's what's being said. There's two commands, turn and come. The word turn is a word that Isaiah uses occasionally, but it's far more common in the book of Jeremiah. In fact, it's the key word in the whole book of Jeremiah, and it is a word for turn that, that um, really, it can be used positively and negatively. When Israel turns away from God, this word, when Israel is called to repent, they're called to turn and come back. The word is generally associated with repentance. You see, Edom, you saying, how much longer, how much longer, how much longer, isn't going to make it any different. You simply have more darkness. You know what would make a difference, though? Repenting. Repenting would make a difference. And it's a, it's a very sobering concept of scripture and again we have to be so careful we have to be careful when we apply old testament scripture to our lives today because we as christians today as we spoke about this morning we're no longer under the wrath of god this clearly is a nation edom that is going to as we saw from isaiah 63 it's very much going to be under the wrath of god and certainly was and we're not christ has forgiven all of our sins if we have trusted in him, there is no wrath left. But nonetheless, I do not I don't want to overstate it, but I think there are times when we seek relief from a situation in our life. And we ask God, take this away, take this away, take this away. And God says, well, you can keep on asking, but you need to turn. You're asking me to do something, but you need to do something. I don't think that's a huge overstatement for me to say that. I think we're well aware that if we're committing a sin in our lives, and we sin and we sin and we sin, that there's going to be consequences of that sin. Regardless of the fact that Christ has forgiven us, regardless of the fact that we're justified by his blood, there are going to be consequences to a sinning. We saw that regularly in the book of Hebrews. when We went through that last year, end of last, uh, beginning of last year. So... We know that the sins that we, um, that we commit, that they are forgiven in Christ, have a real effect in this life. And I think sometimes we bring about our own darkness by our own sin. And clearly that is the case here for Edom. And so the response is, you can keep on asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? But nonetheless, um, the solution is to turn and to come to come back again, to turn in repentance and come to God. And so, just wrapping up the section on Edom. Edom is a nation that has a message for now. 
hey, Edom, you seem to be in darkness right now. It seems to be a bad time in your history. But I've got news for you. Edom is going to be Duma. The darkness is going to get darker. And you can keep on asking and inquiring as to when, when this is going to come to an end. But when it, I'm not suggesting that Edom's history is nothing but darkness. But what I'm saying is the worst is yet to come. You don't want this to pass because what's coming next is worse. But why is that then, you know, he's not wanting to be specific about end time stuff because that's to come later. That's not the context here. What is for now? The now is you need to repent. You need to repent now. One thing that concerns me so often with people is I know far too many people who are not Christians and yet who have been raised in the faith, who know enough about the faith, maybe, to be able to make a decision for Christ. But they haven't. They haven't bowed the knee. They haven't trusted him. And they seem to think that that door is going to always be open. And I, and I see with, with this oracle there being a sense of, okay, this isn't for now, this is for later, hence the cryptic, the mystery, but... You need to repent now. There is an urgency to repentance. You know, there are so many people who are Christians who backslide and then repent. People who live lives apart from God and then repent and get saved. And they're glorious stories of God's redeeming power. They're glorious stories of God turning lives around. But you know what they all have in common? That they create scars and they create wounds, and they create consequences, and they create damage that cannot be undone. Repentance always has urgency. Whether it's the sins that we as Christians commit, that we excuse and we belittle, or whether it is the, the bowing of the knee for the first time to be saved. Postponing repentance is, is always harmful. There is an urgency to repentance. That's what I take away from the oracle of Duma. Um, before we move on to Arabia, just very briefly, um, because I'm sure you're all itching to know what happens to Edom. Um, we've got those passages in Isaiah 34. I mentioned already verses 1 to 17. And then I read to you Isaiah 63, 1 to 6. You will find most detail in Jeremiah 49. Uh, verses 7 to 22. Also Ezekiel 25, 12 to 14. Ezekiel 35, 1 to 15. Amos 1, 11 and 12. Obadiah, pretty much the whole book, the one chapter book is about Edom and the judgment. And Malachi 1, 2 to 5. There's a lot of stuff about Edom. This judgment is great. Why, why so much? Because Edom is going to play a central role in end times. And I'm now taking from all of those passages, from a bunch of other passages, from some New Testament stuff, and a bit of revelation, and I'm giving you a very potted summary. So I'm, I don't normally do this, I don't normally go beyond the text, but I just want you to see why Edom is significant and where it's going. But Edom, and specifically Bosra, is a place where the Jews hide out in the last days of uh, the tribulation. And... Bosra, meaning sheepfold, means that um, it's a place of protection for the sheep of Israel. It's a place of protection, hence Bosra. I don't think Bosra is, I don't think we're going to say, 
you know, oh, where are the Jews going to be in the last days? Well, let's look up Bosra on a map. It's not like that. It means sheepfold, but it is a specific location, but it's a place that has boundaries and walls that would protect sheep. There are many people, and I tentatively include myself amongst them, that think that the biblical location of Bosra is modern-day Petra. Petra is in Jordan, uh, which is um, the, the region of, of ancient Eden. It is a place that is famous because of a monastery there called St. Catherine's Monastery, which was uh, basically made out of the stone, out of the rock there. And it is completely enclosed by rocks. It's in places single file. You can't, it's not like you can drive an army in there very easily or anything like that. It, it is a natural place of protection. If you are not familiar with St. Catherine's Monastery, if you can't picture it in your mind, this, this very famous uh, place, then you may have seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which it featured very strongly in, and horse, uh, horses racing through the, the narrow crevices there. But Petra is certainly about the right location, and it fits the right description of Bosra. But whether it's there or not, nonetheless... The Jews will find a place to hide in Edom, in that re region, in, in wherever Bosra is, and they will hide there. That does not mean that the Edomites are their protectors. The Edomites are trying to hand them over to the Babylonian leader that we call the Antichrist in the last days. And they... Um, maybe we should turn and read it. No, I'm keeping an eye on the clock. No, we won't. We'll just we'll summarize it. But this is a bit of Hosea now. But they will, Zechariah first, they will recognize that Christ was the Messiah, that they've rejected Jesus, and they will turn and they will repent. And they will mourn for him as the, the one they have pierced as they mourn for a, uh, their only son. And then with that repentance, Hosea, there will be this, this outpouring of repentance, and then Christ will return for the cries of his people, fulfilling what he said in the Gospels when he quoted to them Psalm 118. He said to the Jewish people, you shall not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A recognition of his messi messianic um, status. And so they cry out for him to t return, and he returns, and he returns to them where they are in Bosra, Isaiah 63, crushes the enemy's armies, blood over his garments, and then he goes to the Mount of Olives, which is where the other prophecies then pick up. I think there is that sequence of events. So Edom is going to be quite significant in this whole thing. And the last thing I think that is significant about Edom is we, and we'll see this when we come to, I think, chapter 34, but um, we've already seen that in the end times, Babylon in the kingdom will be a place of perpetual desolation. Edom will be the second place that because of very severe and particular judgment, there will be no rejoicing. There will be this place of burning wasteland, this perpetual destruction, even during the time of the kingdom. Okay? So that's the potted history of Edom. Anyway, we'll move on to Arabia, which we can do much quicker, and then we'll see how these two things link together. Okay, so here's Arabia. Here is Arabia. Um, uh, the, Arabia here is um, a little play on words as well. Arabia has a very similar sound to the, uh, to the word evening, to the word evening. And so there is a little play between these two little cryptic oracles because 
Edom is the place of dark, of night. You know, how long the night? How long the night, you know? And Arabia following is evening. So we have night and we have evening. Just have, put that in the back of your mind for now. We'll come back to that. Now, Arabia has never been one big united nation, but rather it's been composed of various tribes. And there's two specific tribes that are dealt with here. The tribe of uh, Dedan, or Dedan and the tribe of uh, Kedah. Um, my pronunciation may not be great, but that's what they are for tonight anyway. Dedan and Kedah. So Dedan is mentioned in Genesis 10 and Genesis 25, <laughs> referenced a few times. It's mentioned with Edom. Uh, the, these two oracles seem to be linked together. Jeremiah certainly thought so. When Jeremiah wrote subsequently to Isaiah, very much a contemporary, but slightly later, I think Jeremiah would have been aware of Isaiah's prophecies for the main part anyway. Um, in Jeremiah 49, that we've already referenced as the passage of judgment, Edom is linked to Dedan. And also in Ezekiel 25. Um, there they're told to stay off the main roads, as, as here. So look at this. Uh, in the thickets in Arabia you will lodge, O caravan of Dedanites. In other words, when you travel, you're going to be traveling through thickets. Now listen, if you are trying to get from point A to point B, I, I run a lot, I'm a, I'm a runner, I do a lot of running, and I can get to various places on foot. And if I am trying to get to somewhere far away and my time is short, then I will go on the road and I will avoid the mountains of the Verdugos because I can get there quicker on a flat, smooth road. But if I want to take in the scenery and I've got the time and I want to go a bit further, I can go up and have the view and I can go on trails and what have you. But if you are taking a caravan of people who live in tents and you're moving en masse, you don't want to go through thickets. You don't want to go on narrow trails. You want to go on main roads. So the, the thing to note here is that they are lodging in thickets, these caravans, which seems to imply that they are not able to be on the main road. They're staying off the main road. That's going to become clear in a moment. Verse 14, to the thirsty bring water, meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tema. Now, Tema um, is, is mentioned as well um, here. It's a different tribe. And Tema is given an instruction to bring water to the thirsty and meet the fugitive with bread. So we have this picture of the Dedanites that are not able to go on the main road. They seem to be fleeing. And Tema are being instructed to give them water and to give them bread because they're clearly fleeing. They are fugitives. Why are they fleeing? Look at verse 15. For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. They're fleeing from war. And as they flee from war, what's happening? Well, the Dedanites are, were renowned as being a proud and self-sufficient tribe. This fits in nicely with one of Isaiah's main themes, which is that of pride and arrogance and haughty looking and thinking. People who believe that they are sufficient in themselves are constantly humbled in the book of Isaiah. And this mighty tribe is having to rely on food, for food and water on a much more minor tribe. This is a humbling for them because they have been attacked and defeated in war. They're fleeing war. 
It's clearly linked to the next section. For thus, verse 16, the Lord said to me, notice Lord there is in small letters, it's Adonai, not Yahweh. For the Lord said to me, within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. Kedar is another uh, tribe of, the, uh, of Arabia that is renowned for not so much its pride and its strength in the way that the Dedanites were, but rather for its wealth and its well-being. These were glorious tents. They were a wealthy tribe. They lived in very elaborate tents. These are the rich people. So if you, if you want to summarize it in ways that we can understand for us, the Dedanites were the powerful ones. <coughs> they were the ones that had might, that were military, militarily strong, and they've now been humbled by a, mighty, uh, a mightier military. With Kedar, we're looking at the wealthy ones. We're looking at the people who live in mansions, so to speak, drive the fancy cars, so to speak. Um, they lived in these elaborate tents. They're mentioned in Psalm 120 and verse 5, and in Song of Songs, chapter 1 and verse 5, with the, the bride uh, and, and all of this sort of glory that is given. It, it's likened to the uh, elaborate tents of the, the, those of Kedar. It is uh, these people of great glory. And so this glory, we're told, within a year, and again, you see how the immediacy of these prophecies in this section comes about, will come to an end. And the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedah will be few, for Yahweh, the God of Israel, has spoken. I like the build-up. There's lots of little things here just to finish off, to notice. The one who is mighty militarily is defeated militarily. The one who has great glory has the glory taken away. That God is in the business of humbling those who exalt themselves. That has been a central theme of the book of Isaiah. Here we have prophecies that are going to be more immediate so that God can be seen. Okay? When you say, hey, here's a prophecy to show you that the house of David will not be defeated. There's going to be a virgin who will give birth. That didn't happen for centuries. Sometimes you need to have more immediate prophecy come to pass. And Isaiah does both. And I think there's something here to this. In that Adonai, the Lord, the, the, just his, him being boss, being mighty, that he says this, and then it ends with Kedah will be few, for Yahweh, that's the name, the God of Israel has spoken. In other words, those in Kedar live in great glory, but they don't give any homage or any worship to the God of Israel. They don't know who, they don't know who Yahweh is. And so he's being sold. Someone mighty is saying to you, all your glory is going to go within a year. So what happens when, within a year, all your glory goes? You're like, that was right. That was true. Somebody said in advance what was going to happen. Who was that? That was Yahweh. He's the God of Israel. Now, we spoke about this this morning, but God is a good God all the time. And God is a good God even in the midst of judgment. And here, in judging the tribe of Kedar, in bringing them down, in taking away their pride, removing their glory, he's giving them an opportunity to be saved. 
He's giving them an opportunity to turn to the true God. That in judgment, even in judgment, there is God's mercy. And finally, uh, the last thing that we can note in this passage is simply this. The connection between the two. As I've already said, Jeremiah links the two together. He clearly saw a link in this passage. Edom is the place of the night. And as we'll discover later on in Isaiah, Edom is going to be a place of perpetual burning. There will be no remnant of Edomites. They will all be gone, just like with Babylon. And there will be a wilderness, a burning wilderness throughout the, the kingdom. But for Arabia, there is, an e there is evening. And Isaiah constantly, in this section of oracles, we've seen again and again, he keeps dealing with the concept of a remnant. The mighty men of Kedar, they won't be gone, but there will be a few. There will be a remnant that remains. Whereas Edom is going to go from darkness of night to death. For Arabia, the evening will have a morning. For one nation, there is no relief. For the other nation, there will be a future. He's introducing the concept of remnant because it's going to become absolutely crucial for Israel to understand it. Because from the time they reject the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, the blindness that Isaiah spoke of in Isaiah 6 that was upon them at this time, that blindness will come upon them again. And it's a blindness that we're told by Paul in Romans is still upon them. And it will be until the end. When finally their eyes will be opened and they will cry out for him to return and he will come to them in Bosra and he will, uh, he will save them physically and spiritually in response to their cries when their eyes are opened. Israel has a remnant today. The remnant are those few Jews who believe that Jesus is their Messiah. We call them Messianic Jews typically today. They are the remnant. And so Isaiah, because being a remnant is going to be so crucial to Israel's future, he is again and again introducing this concept of remnant. It's one of the major themes of the book of Isaiah. For us, I would simply take away this. There are those whose pride is destroyed in judgment and there is no light. There is just further judgment and there is darkness and there is destruction. And there are others whom judgment comes upon and that judgment brings light. It brings a remnant. It brings survival. It brings an opportunity. When we go out into the world, when we have our loved ones, our family, our friends, people we care about, who are under the wrath of God, we have no idea if they are Edom or Arabia. If they are Duma darkness or they are going to be Arabia evening. We don't know if when trials come it will push them to Yahweh, if there will be a second act that is a glorious one or whether there will be just nothing but eternal darkness. It means that the urgency that we have, that's what this is about contextually, immediate future, urgency within the year, we want to be praying. I know often for loved ones who aren't saved or who wandered off, I will pray, God, just break their legs of the sheep if you need to, to pick them up on your shoulder and bring them home. Bring darkness and judgment and trials and woes upon those I love if it would mean that they would turn to you and see you. 
you see the one thing that I think has been really clear in both sermons this morning. Salvation through water this morning as well. Is that even in the midst of great judgment, God is a merciful God. Let's pray with renewed fervency for his mercy, even if that means judgment, on those we love. Let's be praying for lost souls. Let's pray. Father, it is our prayer tonight, as we've just said, as we leave this passage behind. It's our prayer that, uh, that those whom we love, who reject you, who are under your wrath, Lord, we pray that there would, be, there would be mourning after the night. We pray there would be glory after judgment, light after darkness. And Lord, we know that so often your, your judgment is merciful. In our lives, your trials and suffering can be merciful in bringing us to maturity. How much more so for those under your wrath still that you might allow them to suffer in this life, that they might turn to you, that they might not suffer in the next. So Lord, we, we bring now to you those on our hearts. Let's just take a moment of silence and just bring those people on our hearts to God's attention now. Lord, we ask that you would be merciful to these people and bring them into your glorious kingdom for eternity. And Lord, we ask this not simply that you would remove our tears, not simply that you would do it for their good, but that you would do it so that you would be glorified and so that we would see what a mighty and marvelous and merciful God we serve. Amen.